Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Luke Burgess. Luke is author of the book, Wanting. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Eric. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Thanks, Luke. So let's start out with why this book? Why don't you tell the story of, of how you came to, to, to write Wanting, and then, and then let's get into some of the ideas therein. Sounds good. Yeah. So there's a few different reasons why I wrote the book. And so I'm going to explain them because I think they'll set us up pretty well for the rest of our conversation, right? They get into some of the ideas themselves. So the first reason I wrote the book is because it's just the book that I wanted to read, which I think is the best reason to write a book. There's a lot of different books out there. There's a big corpus of knowledge in Girard circles. People have been writing about mimetic theory for decades, really smart people, right? So in in a certain sense, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants when I'm doing this, and I, I don't have time to name them all on this call. Yet anytime somebody has asked me for an intro to mimetic theory, I really struggle with what book to recommend for them. Like something that touches on popular culture, something that's really easy to read, like eighth, ninth grade level you know, that, that touches on entrepreneurship, some of the current events in the world. Uh, and I just really struggled to find that, that book to recommend to people. So I finally decided that I, I kind of had this unique background and skill set uh, where maybe it had to be me. And, and I wanted to give his thought a bigger audience, make it more accessible. Um, at, so at a certain point, I, I went to a cover conference where all the Gerard scholars meet up uh, in Austria. And it was at that point, I realized that I, I basically have to write this book. You know, there's an old Latin saying, quid, quid, recipiter, ad modem, recipientes, recipiter, which basically means, uh, you know, whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver, right? And and for a lot of people, um, they're not going to receive anything. They're not going to get anything out of these super sort of academic books. Uh, so I just saw a, a gap. So that's the second reason is really there was this gap in the market. And I felt like, you know, Gerard wasn't getting a fair shake, right? People in other parts of the world aren't familiar with them because they just have a really, it's hard to grasp these concepts when you're like an intelligent native English speaker, Gerard is hard to read and fairly obscure. Um, You know, imagine, uh, you know, if it wasn't your first language or something, this hasn't been translated in a lot of other languages. So, you know, there's a gap in the market uh, for a book like this. I also felt like And this is just my personal opinion. Not everybody shares this, but I think there's a bit too much of a focus in mimetic theory and in people that are interested in Girard on violence. And I I talked to Peter Thiel about this um, when, when I talked to him for the book, and he sort of agreed with me on that point. So there's a bit too much of an emphasis on violence, and I think on religion too, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, it's hard to talk about Girard without getting into a little theology, I mean, I I like theology. One of my degrees is in theology, so I can certainly talk about it. But I caution people to go straight there. I mean, for one thing, I think it alienates a lot of people or at least causes them to to kind of close up a little bit if the very first thing you start talking about uh, are the Gospels. You know, Gerard himself said that, you know, really his theory was uh, working out of the Gospels and everything was already there. Uh, They're important books to read. Uh, I would say uh, if you haven't read the Gospels yet, stop reading whatever you're reading and read the gospels or do, do yourself a big favor. Um, they're like a, one of the foundational texts in, in, in history um, about the greatest event or the most important event, at least in history. Yet I think that can really um, trip people up. I mean, for one thing, the scapegoat mechanism and the sort of this metaphysical religious approach to Girard, it's very complicated. I mean, the theory is complex and the scapegoat mechanism is the most complex, sophisticated, hardest part of medic theory to understand. So in my opinion, like you don't even want to start talking about that uh, until you spend a lot of time just unpacking mimetic desire, which is like the root of the whole thing. Right. And I, there's like, most of my book is, is about mimetic desire. You know, I, I have a chapter on the scapegoat mechanism, as you know, but um, I think you really have to spend a lot of time developing mimetic desire because that's something that um, is accessible through basic like phenomena that we experience in our own lives every day, especially as entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm sure you and I have a lot in common with, with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the last reason I wrote it was really because, you know, I felt mimetic theory at an existential level through my own uh, journey of being a, a startup founder 
uh, having you know the, the roller coaster ride that that most other people that have that have been in that world can relate to. Yeah, let's un- let's set the table here. Let, let's unpack mimetic desire and and what underneath that idea. What was really the core contribution that didn't exist? You because know, someone might you know not have a huge understanding of, of Gerard and might say, is it simply you know we want what other people want because they want it? You know, how would you sort of unpack mimetic desire and and what is sort of uh, you know, nuanced or, or, or so, you know, game changing about it. Yeah. I think that definition you just gave is a good one. You know, for me, mimetic desire is an understanding of just how pervasive imitation is among humans, right? Most creatures imitate Aristotle said 2,400 years ago that humans are by far the most imitative creatures, uh, in the universe. And, uh, that was true then. And, and it's true now, but what Aristotle didn't put his finger on Plato didn't put his finger on either was this deeper level of imitation. So we're not just, it's not imitation of representation, like art. Uh, Plato talked a lot about that and speech and ways of dressing and, and, you know, music that your friend listens to or anything like that. There's a deeper level of imitation that goes right down to the imitation of desire itself. So we want what other people want because they want it. So it's not we like we just want it because they already have it. There's a deeper level, which Gerard calls metaphysical desire. And that's that we actually desire their desire, right? And if you take that far enough, we sort of desire to be more like them. So imitation is a good and positive thing. It's like how we learn. It's the basis of education. We wouldn't know language without imitation. Dr. Andy Meltzoff at the University of Washington has done these fascinating studies on like the imitation in babies. So it's really good that we have it. Gerard used the word mimesis and he spoke of mimetic desire instead of say imitative desire for a couple of reasons. Mimesis is more of a technical word. It comes from uh, the Greek, but I think it's very useful to distinguish mimesis from imitation. And Gerard, when he used the word mimesis, 95% of the time he was speaking about something negative. So, you know, when babies imitate, they imitate very openly. They imitate their mother super openly. They're proud of their imitation. We talk about role models for children, but something really funny happens as we grow up, right? Like our imitation goes underground. And, and so it happens in a secret hidden way. Well, we're kind of embarrassed of it. Like we, we, you know, before and after the French revolution is really, it's, it's a, it's a game changer in history. Like if you look before the French revolution, imitation was like prized uh, like imi- imitating like the masters was prized and innovation was looked upon with suspicion. Like if you were an innovator, like Hobbes has written about this, if you were an innovator before the French revolution, you were like a heretic and you were disrupting the order and you were not being respectful to your ancestors and things like that. Uh, after that, everything changed. And now we kind of live in a world where innovation is our God. And like, nobody wants to be known as an imitator. I don't really know very many entrepreneurs that like talk about how well they imitate. Right. So, you know, it's mimesis. They, they're still imitating, but they're just doing it in the form of mimesis. Well, first, can you describe what changed such that the, the high status thing, you know, used to be, uh, you know, Im- imitating and now it now is invented. Like what, what, what changed such that that became re- reality? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, I mean, it's, it's a very complex question and we could get into history and politics with this and, and we can go down that road, uh, if we, if we need to, you know, there, there was just a, a general overturning of the existing hierarchies. Um, so we lived in, we used to live in a, in a much more hierarchical world and there, there was a rebellion against that, right? We could even maybe call that a mimetic rivalry, which maybe we'll get into a, a little bit later in the podcast. So there was an overthrowing of those traditional hierarchies and uh, b- before which imitation was uh, respected and done a little bit more openly for, you, you know, you imitated the saints, for instance, um, they're great external mediators. And I think as the culture became more secular, uh, we entered into a world where those kind of stable hierarchies were overturned. And we live in now kind of a, a you know, a, a liquid modernity where we don't have that stable hierarchy sort of everybody's kind of imitating everybody. I mean, we still live in a hierarchical society. There's no doubt about that, but you know, nothing like it used to be. And now that we're all a bit more, it's a bit more egalitarian, sort of like nobody can really speak openly about imitating uh, anybody because like we're all competing with each other in this weird way. And social media probably exacerbated that. Like, you know, I, 
since since you read the book um, or most of it at least, you know, you know, I refer to this kind of new state that we're in as like fresh manistan, uh, because it's almost like we're all freshmen again, right? Remember what freshmen in college was like? I sure do. Uh, and it's like everybody's kind of trying to figure out who they are. Nobody wants to. Everybody's trying to be unique. Nobody wants to, you know, be seen as imitating anybody else. And 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 to, to that end, why don't you unpack uh, mimetic rivalry just to get our, our, our terms out here and, and why that's an important concept to understand? Sure. So if the root of mimetic theory is mimetic desire, meaning we uh, we don't generate our own desires uh, out of this sort of secret desire chamber that we all have inside of our, our bodies. We don't have like this organ of desire uh, that uh, generates them ex nihilo out of nothing. Uh, desires are generated through mimesis. They're generated through other people. Now, I, I mean, I should make a distinction for for all of our, our you know the listeners that aren't familiar with this concept. Many people are like, well, what does that mean? Like, I didn't like imitate anybody to like have my coffee this morning. That's not really what we're talking about. I mean, I would argue that there's probably some amesis involved in that too, in terms of the brand of coffee that you drink and the way that you like it and everything. But those are biological needs for the most part. So I, I would you know, grant that there's not a lot of mimesis involved in that. When we're talking about mimesis, we're, we're really talking about uh, non-instinctual desire, right? So like more abstract things, like the more abstract the, the object, the, the more mimesis is usually involved. So uh, we're, imi- we're, we're generating our desires through imitation by imitating other people. Uh, that means that we're imitating that person's desire for the same object that they want. So we have like de facto made ourselves in a sense, a rival of that person that we're imitating. If we take that far enough, okay? Now, a very important distinction to make is like how close that person we're imitating is to us. So if that person is dead um, or they're separated by like a huge amount of social status, uh, we can imitate them relatively safely uh, because, you know, like I can't seriously compete with Elon Musk as an entrepreneur, right? He doesn't even know who I am. And uh, he's like lives literally in a different social world than I live in. So in that case, like imitation is no problem. But uh, if I'm imitating like the other entrepreneur who's in my accelerator program or something like that, uh, that can become a little bit dangerous because we we like work together every day in the same building. Maybe not now because we're we're talking during COVID, but you know we're we're like very much alike. And the more alike we are, and the closer that we are, not just physically but like existentially and socially, the more dangerous it becomes because we might start competing over the same objects. Like he, you know, he's featured in some like top twenty five under twenty five list, and and I wasn't. You know, and we start competing for that. And then I start resenting him and wondering, uh, you know, how I can like undermine him. Like in, every time he starts talking about his valuation, I start worrying about mine. And that can lead to uh, serious rivalry. So I'll, I'll stop there because we could talk a lot more about that, I'm sure. And, and what do you think is the, is the biggest misunderstood point there in terms of, you know, what people don't quite appreciate when, when understanding some of the things that we're talking about? I think the biggest point that's not understood is the distinction between um, what Gerard calls external mediators of desire and internal mediators of desire. So the external mediator of desire is is like Elon Musk to me in in a different world, right? There's no possibility of competition. That's the easiest definition of the world of external mediators. So I like to call that world celebristan for short. I just think it's easy to remember. Uh, the world of celebrities. And I, I don't mean only celebrities, okay? I mean, like a big brother can like appear to be in stand to a much younger brother, but there's no serious competition between them for girlfriends or whatever. The world of in, internal, like internal mediators are, they're called internal mediators because they're sort of internal to your world. And that's where mimetic desire uh, has a lot of negative effects, right? That's where rivalry happens. Not so much in what I call celebristan, but in this world of internal mediators that I like to call freshmenistan, um, because the, the what it's like to be a freshman in high school or college is very much like that, right? We're all in the we're all on the same page. Like as different as the freshmen think that they are, uh, they're all the same age. Like mostly, none of them have any money. They're all trying to figure things out. They're like very, very similar. And they're all internal mediators to one another. So that that's the, the most important distinction to make. And I think it's one of the ones that people learning about mimetic desire don't really understand. And I think it's the distinction that kind of makes it all click. And people can move between those two worlds. 
Uh, you can have like a, a PhD advisor to somebody getting their, their doctorate degree who's like in, in Celebristan, right? There's no possibility of competing with this like famous economist. But as soon as that uh, student gets his PhD or her PhD and starts publishing and becoming known, and now all of a sudden they're talking to Tyler Cowen and on his podcast, all of a sudden uh, they're in the same world. So they've, they've just moved from being external mediators to being internal mediators. Now, now how does this all relate to uh, entrepreneurship? Uh, I think that it has so much to do with entrepreneurship, and it, it's it's fun talking to, to you about this. And I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts. I mean, because uh, you you operate in the space, right, Eric, uh, with Village Global and Beyond Deck. Uh, so I think that more than ever, especially with social media, like everybody is, seems to be an entrepreneur these days, right? Even journalists are becoming entrepreneurs with Substack. Like everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody has to be an entrepreneur in some sense as they like detach from traditional institutions in the New York Times or whatever. Uh, people work at Google and Facebook and they leave to start their own companies. That's like what you want to do. So, but, but more than ever, we, we all sort of like live in the world of internal mediators. Like we all sort of like know what everybody else is doing it's publicized. We, we have like shark tank style competitions. Uh, it's much of it has become very performative, which I, I, you know, it makes me wonder, like, you know, we're losing sight of like what the market thinks and not what, uh, like some, some judge in a competition thinks. And and it's become, in in my opinion, there's a lot of hidden and underground rivalry. Uh, like I I teach entrepreneurship at a business school, um, part-time, uh, you know, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs and if you really go deep enough with a lot of them, they have like a lot of angst and anxiety. And my diagnosis most of the time is that, I mean, we could talk about like mental health with entrepreneurs all day long because it's a problem. But part of that is them probably not realizing the way that mimetic desire is driving them, the way that it, that rivalry is operative in their lives, the way that they're constantly looking to their left and their right to see what everybody else is doing. Uh, and that can really get them off track. And I, I want to be clear. I think community is a really important thing. I think, you know, what you're doing uh, is is a game changer in education and lifelong learning. I mean, I wish I had had something like that when I was an undergrad and after I graduated, um, you know, people transitioning between jobs. The community is valuable. I think that we have to be mindful of the mimetic dynamics inside of communities and probably take steps. You know, I'm not a fan of like the, the top-down approaches to managing mimesis, but I think people need to be aware so they can manage it better in their own lives. And, and and what does that look like? How how can the leaders in communities, you know, transform mimetic desire into something positive? I think there are certain things that that leaders can do. Peter Thiel has shared, you know, the story about how he kind of managed mimesis. So Peter Thiel is a a very you know he was Girard's student and is is probably the most well known Girardian out there. I like Peter, but he you know he's sort of got a monopoly on Girard's thought, right? But one of the things that he shared with me, and I think it's actually in zero to one, uh, is that you know he used to give people clearly defined tasks uh, so that they weren't competing for abstract things like status and prestige. So he always gave them very clearly defined objectives that he could measure them against uh, rather than measure them against each other. And companies do that all the time. I mean, I think one of the most toxic things that companies do is like chop the, the lowest 10% of the company um, because that talk about encouraging mimesis, right? Because like now the only thing that you care about is not being in the bottom 10%. So you take another people as your sort of like measure of, of, of value. And so, so of the managers, super toxic, not to mention it's, it's part of partly the scapegoat mechanism, right? Like we purge the, the problem, you know, sports teams do that all the time, right? The Knicks have a bad season, fire the coach, right? That hasn't really worked out so well for them. You know, but on a personal level, which I, and I'm more interested in kind of the personal level, I think just be, you have to become aware of it. And it's not easy, really, to, to become aware of it. I mean, most people that have heard of Gerard and read about him, they're like, oh, shit, like, this is real. Like, this this exists. I get it. Like, I'm, I'm seeing mimesis everywhere now, right? And then, you know, maybe two or three years later, they have their holy shit moment. And the holy shit moment is the moment when they see it in themselves. It's the moment where like it's had a chance to percolate through and they've like experienced that at an, at an existential level and they maybe see themselves getting caught up in it and then they have to extract themselves from it. And, you know, that that's just hard work. I mean, it takes some humility. 
uh, it, it takes some contrition. It takes some serious like self introspection, which, um, I, you know, I don't know if we have that in great supply these days. So, you know, I, I, I talk about 15 separate tactics in the book. Um, like just understanding like who your models are, you know, positive and negative, who you're, you know, ex- external, internal, you know, being mindful of, um, you know, what kind of news you consume, all of those things. Right. And not, not just, I don't just mean like the mass media. I mean, news about other people. Simon Sinek believes leaders should always start with why, but you, you think it's better to, to lead with desire. Uh, un- unpack that. Sure. You know, I think the heart knows things that, that the mind can't know. And great leaders appeal to transcendent things, transcendent possibilities, and they tap into that human capacity for wonder and awe. And those are desires that really transcend um, all explanation. Uh, we, we live in, you know, in my opinion, in a fairly hyper-rationalistic world. And I think that uh, people are wanting things. Um, people are desiring long before they have any kind of reason to explain why, uh, you know, falling in love often works like this, right? So in my opinion, uh, desire comes first. The, the, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the, the author of The Little Prince, um, wrote a beautiful line that I think sums up um, this, this kind of approach. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood, don't assign them tasks and work, but teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You know, so that, that doesn't happen necessarily through TED Talks or PowerPoints or carefully crafted mission statements and stuff like that. It happens from standing on the beach. You know, it, it happens from, from looking out of the, over the ocean and longing um, or looking up at Mars and, you know, wishing we could go there. So there's like a part of the human spirit that uh, I don't think we capture very well with some of this more rationalistic approach. So I, I like, uh, I mean, I like Simon Sinek and, and I, I use Start With Why. In fact, I, I, you know, I have my students watch that video and we talk about it. Uh, but I think there's a, there's another layer here. Um, and mimetic desire has like, it's like a complementary piece. That's the way that I would put it. It's like the missing piece to that whole discussion. Yeah. And how do we make sense of sort of mimetic desire? Like as it relates to like status and, and social capital, like how do we sort of reconcile these ideas or, or how, how do they intersect with each other? Yeah, that, that's a really great and, and complex question. Um, you know, you're in the education space, Eric. So I, I have like this running joke with some of my friends, like, you know, what's education going to look like and, and what's, what are the Ivy leagues going to look like uh, 10 years from now? And, and sometimes I honestly wonder if you're going to have uh, a kid who gets into Harvard or Stanford and their strategy is to post their acceptance letter on Instagram, like take all of the capture, all the mimetic value um, that that may or may not may, may or may not bring them from that, uh, you know, and then d- decline the invitation and uh, go join be on deck and save themselves like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. You know, so there I, there's this like sort of like debundling de- process uh, that, that we're kind of going through and I'm not quite sure how it's going to shift things, but people play with that with mimetic value all the time. And uh, I don't think we really recognize like the like mimetic value is is real. I mean, I think it's super active in the stock market right now. I, I mean, I'm happy to give you more of the philosophical underpinnings of, of this too, because I think there, there's a lot there. But I, that's that's what I would say that I, I think people are playing mimetic games with status, and I mean, they, they always have. Let, let's get into some of the philosophical underpinnings. So I kind of cut my teeth. Uh, I study philosophy. Um, after business school. So I, I did it a, a weird way. I did it the other way around. And uh, a couple of huge influences on me were uh, Max Shaler and Dietrich von Hildebrand. And uh, they're both in the same uh, line. They're both phenomenologists. And both of them um, sort of most fully articulated in von Hildebrand had what they would call a value response theory of, of, of ethics. Okay. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm really, really simplifying here maybe oversimplifying. I, I know I run that risk, but uh, in short, it's the idea that, that human beings can sense v- values in the world. Not like all of them, right? Like some, some of our sense to, to values needs to be formed um, through like the pursuit of truth and through a good education and through wonder and things like that. So when we, we see a value in the world, our response to that value, um, whether we either respond to that value uh, or or not okay and the 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 gap between our, our that the value itself like the objective value itself 
in our response to that value is uh, probably represents like a, some kind of like a gap um, or a, a lack or a weakness in our our personal development and our personality. Okay, so let me just give you two two simple examples. I mean, there are moral values, there are aesthetic values, there there are economic values, right? So there's all different kinds of values. So if we take a, a the, the moral value, you know, we say that somebody was walking down the street and he saw somebody drowning in a lake. And he could very easily help them and he doesn't help them. He's not responding to some basic value there. We'd say like pretty much anybody would agree there's something wrong with that person, right? And so what's the, what's the value there? Well, it's like human dignity. It's the value of human life, right? Um, like uh, which human dignity is kind of the foundation of, of most morality. But we would pretty much all agree that there was a value there that was worth taking a, f- a few minutes out of his day and maybe getting his suit wet to jump in the water and help that person. Okay. Uh, that's easy. I think like where value response gets more interesting is, is in um, like aesthetics. Like, you know, I've taken uh, a person into a, like a, a beautiful Gothic church in Europe. And it was like the first time this person like ever stepped foot inside of a church in their life. And th- they were like, totally like chewing gum and like zero response. Okay. Like zero. And there was, it happened to be like really beautiful music playing at the same time. And it was just like, uh, yeah, that's cool. Like let's go on to the next thing. And I remember thinking like, yeah, that's, there's something like something a little bit off about, about the response to that, like that level of beauty. Right. Cause that's, that's an aesthetic value. And by the way, for anybody listening, like that, that's one of the things that I, I feel like you watch enough porn, that's one of the things that happens to you, right? Because you you're so used to responding to like crude values uh, that you you begin to lose the ability to re- to respond to other values, right? Like more transcendental values, um, to to real beauty, right? So the real the real tragedy in that situation is that one day you're standing in front of a sunset uh, and it doesn't do anything to you, right? You're just like totally numb. So I'm I'm getting a little bit sidetracked with that discussion, but the reason why I think that value response theory is so fascinating and relates to mimetic theory is that you know Shaler uh, and, and von Hildebrand sort of believe that there are these objective values that one can or cannot respond to um, in adequate measure. Okay. Mimetic theory is kind of the idea that, you know, most people are not responding to objective values at all. The, the number one value that they are responding to is mimetic value. In other words, they're just like responding to the status of another person, another person's desire. So they've kind of went from a, like a vertical response to objective values to a horizontal response. This is kind of a roundabout way of, of trying to get at a point. But I think that mimetic value is like rampant in our world. And uh, I'm sort of struggling through. I don't have a clear answer, but something tells me that there's something important to, to, to be made in this sort of distinction, right? In, in understanding mimetic value and objective value and how those things can, can get out of whack you know, whether we're talking about in the stock market or, or whatever, medic value uh, seems to be dominant right now. It's really interesting because the internet and, and technology seems to make mimetic value much more legible and explicit in, in a way that it could sort of unbundle when, when you talk about, you know, cars or houses or paintings or I don't know, whatever they were sort of bundled with the act. You could, you know, plausible deniability that there's actual utility there, but really you're, you know, you're, you're paying for, for some medic value in, 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 in certain cases um, among certainly luxury goods. And it's interesting because like now, especially with NFTs and sort of, you know, crypto products, like, you know, what's more valuable, the, the a painting itself or sort of the knowledge of its provenance and who else owned it and, you know, how rare it is. And, and it seems for many people, actually the latter is, is, is more like signal, does more signaling than, than the, the painting itself which, you know, might as well just be sort of like ex- extra. And so I think we're sort of unbundling what makes great signals and the internet is sort of recombining them in, in new ways, in ways that, you know, um, yeah, like new, new forms of medic value. And you mentioned sort of, or alluded to sort of GameStop and, and the stock market stuff, but it's, um, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that's happening in, in education too. I mean, education in, in a sense is being un, unbundled, but also like rebundled in certain ways. 
uh, and then it might get, you know, unbundled again and repackaged. I mean, it's certainly something that's getting disrupted. And, you know, we're seeing different sources of, of value signals, you know, and mimetic value. I mean, it's not all bad. I mean, I think we all kind of like use them and we all respond to them. So I'm not, you know, suggest, and I'm certainly not above it. I, I consider myself a pretty mimetic person, you know, so we see it in art, but we certainly see it in education. I think one of the interesting things like, uh, you know, what the Teal Fellowship did, you know, once a couple of brilliant people got it and dropped out of, uh, dropped out of college, there were now models for that, right? Yeah. So the, fir- the first one is always the hardest one, right? You just need to get the, the first whatever. Um, and it's, you know, the second and the third are like exponentially easier because now somebody's signaling value. Yeah, totally. And, and so just to like speculate, like how do you, how do we foresee sort of the, like even in the past six months, I mean, or three months, like a lot has happened around medic value. Like how do you see that evolving or changing as, uh, as the internet or technology continues to, to, to progress? Is it going to become more and more salient and important? And if so, what, what could that look like? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know is the short answer. I, I have absolutely like no, no idea. Um, I, I have, I mean, I have some ideas and they're in the book, so um, I'll, I'll probably reserve from speaking too much about them right now. I mean, one of the, one of the ideas that I uh, sort of allude to is, is, you know, is it possible that there's going to be um, sort of a technology or something like that? Uh, that will mimetic the negative effects of of mimetic desire, right? Like something that can diffuse it. I think you can make a strong case that uh, social media. Uh, this is kind of a paradox, right? It's it's really weird that social media probably simultaneously diffused mimetic desire in, in many ways. Because if you think about it, like if you lived in a little town in one little high school you could have serious like rivalries with like one or two other kids in that high school to be valedictorian or, or whatever. And that could get out of control, right? Like that could end up like blowing up and getting, getting super weird. But now like your, your models are like not just the kids in your high school. Your, your models are like kids from all over the world because you see them talking about what they're doing on social media. So in that sense, like it's, it's diffusing the, the, the little rivalries that can, creep up in freshmanistan on the other hand we all know that uh, social media exacerbates and fuels mimetic rivalry at the same time because like now you've got more models and there's like more mimesis going on and i mean you could get into a rivalry with somebody who posts beautiful instagram photos who lives on the other side of the world who happens to be your same age or something so um it's ambiguous you know, Girard was, was very much like that. Like he sort of saw both sides of everything. Like he saw like every, like mimesis is good and bad. You know, it's good and evil, just like we all are. Like all of us are, are both good and bad. Like we're, we're just this mix. Uh, and, you know, so a lot of people aren't comfortable, I think, making sort of some of the like seeing that as part of, I think, our political problems today, right? Like everything's got to be black and white, but everything's not black and white. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. An idea I'm connecting in my head is this this idea that, you know, vulnerability has gotten more popular um, in in recent years, or just sort of like, you know, sharing your failures, sharing your struggles. And I wonder if some implicit reason for why that's become more popular is because because we are in these mimetic games with each other, and always, you know, always you know seeing each other's highlight reels, and you know, we sort of difficult to escape. The more that we see their low light reels, the better we feel about ourselves. And mm. so may, maybe that's sort of a subconscious element as to why the idea of, you know, sharing your failures is, is so popular. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's actually a really fascinating point, Eric. Um, and it's, it's funny only in the sense that like we can like become in a mimetic rivalry for sharing our, our low reels. You know yeah. I mean? like, <laughs> we, we can get into mimetic rivalries for like almost anything. Yeah. Like we can, we can compete to be like more humble than another person, right? Like the, the irony of that. I think the way that Gerard would put it is that mimesis, even if it starts off like in a kind of a healthy way, like, oh, I'm inspired by this person or that's a good idea. Let me do that too. If you give it enough time, uh, it almost always, and the people are close enough, it sort of almost always turns into uh, kind of the mimetic game. Yeah. And so, you know, you hear this response of like, okay, you know, don't compete, Um, you know, find something for which you're the only one who does what you do. 
uh, not not instead of you know focusing on the rat race tournament style that Teal talks about. And I, the question there is like, yeah, but are eight billion people going to find eight billion niches or, uh, niches? Or how do you sort of see that? Like, can no one compete? Is is that is that the solution? Like, does that scale? Does that work? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I that that seems to be one of the pro- one of the difficulties with the way that that we're sort of moving, right? I sort of see that everybody has to be like the like their own brand and their own persona, and I wonder, like, I I mean, everybody's unique and unrepeatable human being, okay? But I'm talking on a on the business level, right? Yeah. Like, are are we all like going to just move to a world where like everybody is like you know has like an LLC after their name and has this brand and persona. I mean, I think it's going to make a lot of people miserable. You know, I, I'm not sure if like, just like, like mass, like UBI is, is the answer. I don't, I don't really know exactly uh, where we're going with that, but I do sense there's, there's a, a real kind of like shift underway, you know, and, and th- there's this idea of like, Competition is also ambiguous, right? I, I'm not one of these people that's like competition is always good, right? If there's no competition, it's not valuable. That's that's a funny kind of mimetic. Uh, we could we could have a mimetic riff on on, on just that, but um, competition is it's also not bad, right? You got Peter Thiel. It's like you know competition, like build a monopoly, right? It's it, competition is both. There's good competition and bad competition, and really the key is knowing like when to compete and when not to compete. It's really that simple. And there's some people you you know you're in a competition with, and at a certain point you need to opt out of that competition because if you take it far enough, there's literally no end to it. So I think there's a lot of confusion about like the nature of competition itself, and you know you have like the, like you know the h- hardcore. Um, like laissez-faire kind of kind of people, like competition is is is, is everything. And then you have you know the, the other side on the far left. It's like you know competition is is like a bad thing. I mean, there's definitely a middle ground here, and I I just see people taking that to to two extremes. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned the LLC thing, and we were talking earlier about you know entrepreneurship, and and so it sort of asked asked me ask like what does it mean to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and you know that that sort of segues into just a broader, you know, philosophical conversation about you know being uh, in, in general that I know you're you're interested in. Yeah, you know, Gerard said that all desire is at root um, really, really metaphysical desire. So it's a desire for being. So I I don't know about you, Eric. I, I mean, um, I'm fascinated by by the idea of like people wanting to be entrepreneurs. I th- I mean, I think that's a good and noble thing. I just, I, I wonder, like, how does that happen? Like, what, what's the process by which that happened? It seems to me like, at least in my experience, there's a problem in the world and th- the best way to solve that problem happens to be starting a company, right? There are other ways to solve problems uh, other than starting a company. Like you start a company because you believe you can add, add create value, right? For all the stakeholders, make a profit. There are other ways to solve problems. I mean, it might be like political action. It could be like writing a book. Uh, there's a lot of ways to solve problems. Some problems are just best solved through starting a company, you know. And uh, a lot of the best entrepreneurs I know, like that that that's the way that it works. So in other words, it's not like this abstract idea of like acquiring some like being of of an entrepreneur. Um, and there, therefore you're an entrepreneur and you go around starting companies, uh, like w- w- to, to, to fix the world or something like that. Right. Like, uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right. You might be starting companies where you don't need to start a company. So, uh, you know, I, I think like the, the idea of grounding it in, in the, to concretize this idea of being an entrepreneur around specific problems and a company being the best way to, to address that problem, to create value is a, is a better way to, to think about it. I, I'm a little, and it's, I look, I, I'm part of uh, the, the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship, right? So uh, I do believe that uh, you, you can, you can teach certain skill sets and a certain spirit and mindset fully. Okay. But I, there is something a little bit funny about like, what do you want to be when you want to grow up? When you grow up, I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, what does that mean? And, you know, well, it means I want to like be like Elon Musk uh, or something or Jeff Bezos or something like that. Uh and it's never very well defined, and I think that that can cause people some disillusionment uh, if they take that far enough. If that if that makes sense, and it is, yeah, it is. They're, they're sort of combining some self actualization. <laughs> it, it's not right. just be like, but it's like realize myself and 
And the way that we do that is by capitalism. <laughs> right, right. Is there such thing as, as the founder's mythology? Or you, you wrote a, a substack on, on this uh, based on a conversation you had with Peter Thiel. Why don't you unpack that? Yeah. So, you know, the the, the founder's mythology in, in mimetic theory, um, you know, Gerard sort of, you know, dispels the idea that there's such a thing as as founders, actually. You know, we have many like founding myths in our culture, like Romulus and Remus, the the founders of Rome. And, you know, mimetic desire is this idea of like, we're not like we're born into the social structure. I mean, I don't know if I've necessarily like found anything on, on my own. Uh, at, at all, and and I, I find that a lot of entrepreneurs like romanticize the the founder's journey. I mean, I I think that the word founder is a little bit funny. You know, Peter and I talked about this a little bit. It's this idea that like I saw this problem in the world, and you know, I you know objectively like sifted the data and saw this opportunity and 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 went for it right and 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 built this company and found these people so it's kind of this like hyper rationalistic explanation of of like the the founding journey and i think if you get underneath like the the story i mean i, I don't know any startup whose like founding mythology or founding story is actually the one that i hear like if if we have beers together or something like that and we talk and i kind of like learn a little bit more about like what was driving the person in the beginning and and you kind of get on you know you see the dark underbelly and you learn about some of the the real trials uh and you get under kind of some of like the the hagiography that we can have about some entrepreneurs like there's a lot of well entrepreneurs uh you you know they they just have a life that's very different than the one that the, the that is portrayed in the media and the, in the in the public um so i think there's a lot of mythology around the around founders and uh, we go down a huge rabbit hole. We probably don't have time for it, right? Um, actually, I, I don't have time to do it because I'll be in trouble uh, with my with with my my fiance if I don't make it. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, in mimetic theory, though, there's a lot written on founding mythology. And in, in mimetic theory, the idea of of founding myths always covers up some kind of original original violence, right? So. Um, our mythology and i think there is a lot of startup mythology i'm not saying that that every company has a mythology but there's a lot of startup mythology uh it's usually to cover up things that uh we don't want people to know so i'll I'll leave it at i'll leave it at that uh risk of going into a tangent you mentioned Matt, max shaler uh, i believe he wrote a book on resentment and and i know you've studied nietzsche quite a bit and my understanding of, of nietzsche is that you think he was right on resentment but didn't fully appreciate sort of the difference between the internal and external uh, mediation. Can, can you unpack that idea, but then also maybe start with why, you know, what, what the core contribution of, you know, like why resentment is such a core, you know, like feeling to, to humans? Yeah. So resentment is such a core feeling to humans in uh, the Girardian kind of view, uh, because it's resentment that, that often drives uh, mimetic desire. Like resentment is why people like pick a certain model in the first place, because they believe this person has some quality of being that they lack. I mean, at the end of the day, the only reason that we would ever choose a model to imitate is because, I mean, if you think about it, why would we choose a model if we think that that model is like inferior to us in, in, in some respect, okay, in, in whatever like domain of life? We only choose models that, that we think like have something that we don't have, um, some like quality of being, whether that's like the way that they're a father or, you know, the, the way that they're an entrepreneur, um, you know, like a lot of like unicorn entrepreneurs sort of like occupy that, that, that status, right? It's almost like they're like cut from a different cloth. They, they like have some, some like being, you know, that's just different. Um, I think a lot of younger entrepreneurs think like that. Uh, and, and so we, we choose models very often through resentment. Like we resent that, like, you know, they, they, they have something that we don't have and that's why, that's why we imitate them. So, you know, resentment, uh, very closely related to envy. You know, one of my favorite quotes by Gerard, uh, he said something along the line, I'm paraphrasing here, like the reason that we all talk about sex so much is because nobody wants to talk about their envy. Like, uh, sex is cool to talk about, but, you know, um, especially in college, but envy is not like who wants to talk about the fact that they're envious of somebody else. Nobody, you know, you never hear anybody talk about that. So, you know, envy is kind of this, the, the, the form in which mimetic 
desire and mimetic rivalry manifests itself the most. So it's the form that mimetic desire and, and rivalry often takes. Man, this podcast is, is, is a lot darker than I, than I thought. <laughs> um, well, we, we, I guess we, we had to go here. This is good. This is really good. You know, so, so Nietzsche and, and, and Shaler, uh, you know, I, Nietzsche's brilliant. He's one of Gerard's favorite philosophers, right? And, uh, you know, identified, uh, you know, re- resentment as, as really like driving a large part of culture. And, you know, he really sort of like hated, hated Christianity, you, you know, for like, o- like o- overturning kind of like the, the, the hierarchy and making the victims sort of like, like known and, uh, and, uh, and, and loved and protected as you know, like he, his, his theory of will to power is complete opposite of this. Right. And just said, you know, like if, if you're these, all these Christians, right. They just like resent the, 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 the people with the power and the money. And like, it's just the resentment that's driving everything that, that they do. And in some cases you might be right. I mean, I know plenty of Christians that are, that are driven by certain forms of resentment or people that are, that are poor or people that like, that just don't have what another person uh, has. But re- resentment is a, uh, you know, can't, it's kind of like the, the mistake of, uh, of like a Freud, right. Where like you identify like this, this one thing, like repressed sexual desire and like try to use it to explain absolutely everything where what Gerard saw is in a you can't do that with resentment either. Right. Just because somebody wants something that, that another person has doesn't necessarily mean that they resent that person. I would actually challenge the, 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 the sour grapes, like the Aesop sour grapes. I, I do not think that uh, that's necessarily always the case. I, I, like, I, I disagree with Taleb a little bit on that point, but I, I, I forget your original question, Eric. I think it was something about taking this back to <clears throat> taking this back to uh, Gerard. And, and what Nietzsche understood and what he didn't about internal, like he was right about resentment, but didn't get the difference between. Internal. He didn't understand internal mediation. Right. Um, so he didn't make that distinction that I'm really glad we had a chance to make at the very beginning of the podcast. Um, uh, because Nietzsche himself was um, ridiculously like resentful of like Wagner. Right. Like totally like, like worshiped him. He was an idol to him. And in a way, like Wagner was a bit of an external mediator. And then it was sort of always an external mediator. So Shaler and Nietzsche, like neither one of them really made this distinction between external mediators and internal. And uh, it's the internal mediators where resentment is, is really nasty. So it's not just kind of the Marxist like class warfare. Um, that's more of an external mediation thing. It's the internal mediators, the fresh menistan, where resent where you really have to worry about resentment the most. And and I think that's where mimetic theory can bring a lot to the table when we we start talking about things like class, uh, and diversity, um, equality. All of these things, you know, mimetic theory, I think, is really the the key to unlock some of the more nuanced discussions we need to be having about those things. We just have uh, four minutes, so I want to end on the last two questions, and I'll let you, you know, spend as much time as you want on each. The first one is, how do we avoid this uh, getting scapegoated? <laughs> how do you avoid the, the scapegoat uh, mechanism, or or when it is coming for you, sort of bounce back from it? That's sort of one question. Second question, and this sort of you know comes full circle in how you start the book which is talking about uh, sort of the ecosystem that, that Tony Shea, uh, you know, rest in peace, uh, built in, in Las Vegas and why, while it had some, you know, amazing things about it, it also had some unique challenges uh, that relate to some of the ideas we, we've been talking about. So I'll, I'll put those two questions out for you and, 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 and let you take it from here. Yeah. So, you know, the first, I'm going to focus on the second question because, uh, you know, if I could answer the first question, I, I'd be like a billionaire. Uh, I, I really don't know how you can avoid being a scapegoat. I mean, unless you like uh, just become a hermit or something. <clears throat> you know, I if I had the answer to that first question, I'd be able to like solve cancel culture on this podcast. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I, I really don't know. Um, you know, it's funny that I I do I do notice people like really uh, they sort of like intuitively like know how the scapegoat mechanism works, even if they can't, you know, articulate it in Girardian terms. And, you know, like they're, everybody's like very careful not to stand out. Like nobody wants to stand out, you know, for fear of being noticed and being singled out, right. On social media. And it's like, everybody's kind of like scared. It's better to say nothing. Right. And, and then as you know, like saying nothing, people like read into that too. So man, I have no idea. I, for, for the second question, the second question, you know, Tony Shea, rest in peace. I mean, Tony Shea and I had a close relationship for for a while. It's def- 2008 was the was the height of that, and I think he's an incredible entrepreneur. And um, 
special and, and, and what he built, um, the culture that he built. Um, I was, I was lucky to, to be a part of it. It also taught me a lot about mimetic desire. Uh, that was right around the time when I was really learning about it, um, and, and becoming aware of it. And I saw it, uh, existentially kind of in the downtown project and, uh, in, in Zappos itself, um, especially with the adoption of holacracy. I think that kind of, uh, you know, brought everybody into fresh Menistan real quick. I, th- I think it made everybody an internal mediator to everybody else. And, uh, and exacerbated some of the, some of the problems, right? Um, you know, one of my favorite books is, is, uh, the underground man by Dostoevsky. It's kind of like the first modern novel and, uh, the way that I would describe what happened there. Uh, and there were, there were a few suicides, unfortunately, and, and, you know, a lot of unhappy people. Uh, I think that desire went, went into the underground. You know, I, I think it was kind of like the underground man. Uh, and you know, everybody had to, um, you know, paint a happy face and, uh, and their, their mimetic desires, their mimetic rivalries. And a lot of those things went underground. Um, that's all in chapter three of the book. So I, I hope your listeners consider, um, you know, if they enjoyed this, um, you know, it's, it's a long book. There's a lot in there. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about my relationship with Tony and in my read on, on what went on down there, I, I think it's a different read than you'll find uh, anywhere else. Um, it's kind of like the, the mimetic lens of, of what happened uh, in downtown Vegas. And um, it's just it's just my my view of things as a uh, Girardian. That's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, Luke, this has been a great episode. The book is uh, Wanting. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, go, go check it out on, on Amazon. Correct, Luke? Uh, Amazon, bookshop.org, wherever you like to buy your books from. Yep. Awesome. It's, it's a, it's an excellent book. I was lucky to read it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it too. If, if you in, enjoyed listening to this conversation, Luke, uh, any other plugs or w- where people can, can find you? Uh, I have, a, so I have a mimesis and culture club on clubhouse. If you're on clubhouse yet. Uh, so if you're on the app, uh, give me a follow. I'll, I'll just give you an invite. We're going to try to start holding weekly rooms. Um, and Eric, I will probably see you around on there one of these days, maybe even tonight. Yeah, perfect. I look forward to joining. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, excited for uh, more of the world to be exposed to these ideas via, via your book. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.